This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Martha McCallum, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, June 24th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A highly anticipated Supreme Court ruling strikes down a New York state gun law that restricted who could carry a concealed weapon in public. And people on both sides of the political aisle are calling it a monumental decision. There's no question in my mind that this opinion will be one of the most important, if not the most important, that Justice Thomas will write in his long career. I'm Dave Anthony. It's been four months since Russia invaded Ukraine, and there is no end to the fighting in sight. The losses have been so incredible on both sides. Ukraine losing up to 200 men a day. So there are real questions as to will each side have the manpower to continue this slaughter for the weeks ahead. And I'm Ben Domenech. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a New York state gun law that said gun owners need to show proper cause in order to carry a handgun in public. The decision was six to three, with Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer dissenting. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said knowing this decision was coming had been keeping him up at night. This decision has made every single one of us less safe from gun violence. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said her state is closely reviewing its options now, including calling a special session of the legislature. The Justice Department issued a statement saying they disagreed with the decision and remain committed to saving innocent lives by enforcing and defending federal firearms laws. But Fox News anchor Shannon Bream, who also covers the Supreme Court, explained, This isn't saying a free-for-all, no concealed carry license. It is going to change the way and the criteria you have to show to get a concealed carry license. But it's not doing away with the fact that the that the state can know who's carrying, um, decide, you know, how these licenses are meted out, that kind of thing. It's just taking away that elevated showing that you have to show something specific or a specific threat mm -hmm. in order for you to get that. And in fact, California's attorney general took a more measured tone after the decision. While unhappy with it, Rob Bonta said the court did not disturb California's efforts to keep dangerous people from getting permits and that they will assess an individual's dangerousness before giving one a permit. The assessment is going to be robust, including looking at arrests, convictions, restraining orders, and other publicly available information that might suggest that a person poses a danger to themselves or to others. The Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence says 25 states require a permit to carry a concealed weapon in public. New York is one of eight states, along with D.C., that have a higher bar, more restrictions on a concealed carry permit. A person can be denied, and often is, if they don't show a strong enough reason demonstrating why they need to carry in public. This is a momentous decision. Jonathan Turley is a law professor at George Washington School of Law and a Fox News legal analyst. It rivals even the decision in 2008 in Heller when the Supreme Court recognized the individual right uh, that is contained in the Second Amendment. The reason this opinion is so important is that it clarifies the standard for future challenges under the Second Amendment. In some ways, it's analogous to famous cases like Katz, 
which essentially reframed how privacy cases would be handled by the Supreme Court. There's no question in my mind that this opinion will be one of the most important, if not the most important, that Justice Thomas will write in his long career. The opinion has many of the elements that Justice Thomas is well known for. It has originalist type of analysis, but also it is very clear, very direct, and very bold in what it says about the Second Amendment. It tells courts that they can't put a burden on citizens to prove that they should be able to use a a constitutional right. They said that burden really belongs with the state. So telling citizens that they have to prove to the state that they have a right to carry a gun outside Mm -hmm. the home is a burden that is too great for the Second Amendment. And the court shoots down um, the two-step analysis used by courts to support those types of rulings. It's interesting that you pointed that out about the burden. When I was reading the initial part of the ruling, it did strike me that they were saying that the burden is on the government to justify Second Amendment restrictions, not on law-abiding citizens to justify why they would want a gun for self-defense. Right. The opinion brings clarity to this area for future Second Amendment challenges. First, it says that the burden in looking at the limitation of a constitutional right rests with the government, not with the citizen, that the presumption is that a citizen can use the individual rights contained in the Bill of Rights, including the ones under the Second Amendment. And what the court is saying is that if you want to restrict individual rights, you, the state or the city, need to shoulder a burden because the presumption belongs with the citizen. The second element of clarity is that the court says that there really is no natural distinction between possessing a gun inside the house or outside the house. This was a major distinction (laughs) used by lower courts that uh, we might be under heightened limitations with regard to guns protecting the home, but we have greater leeway when people are walking around in society. The court says there is no natural distinction. The Second Amendment applies to the possession of guns inside and outside the home. Yeah, that was actually one of my other questions was that Heller established, right, that you have that ability to protect yourself inside the home. But then when you go outside the home, if you want a restriction on like a bar or a school or a special place that just simply being in Manhattan is not a special place. That's right. And I think that people also need to recognize that this is not some runaway train under the Second Amendment. The majorities, once again, say that there can be limitations for sensitive places like polling places. The key here is that they're clarifying whose burden it is in these initial challenges under the Second Amendment. The interesting thing is that that is probably as important as Heller itself in the protection of the right under the Second Amendment, where Heller recognized the individual right. Uh, It is this case that will probably be cited more often in how that right is protected in court challenges. 
Professor, we just talked about how this decision established that the burden is on the city or the state or the government to prove that a restrictive law on guns is needed, not the citizen, right? Now we're hearing from lawmakers in places like New York and others that they're going to figure out what their next steps are. Is a next step from a city or a state making the case? Okay, fine. We, we have the burden. Let us show you the burden. Let us show you the statistics. Let us prove to you that we need a gun law. In, in other words, that they would take on that burden and then go after a new case. Well, it was interesting to see within minutes, New York Governor Kathy Hochul saying that this is, quote, shocking, absolutely shocking, that they have taken away our right to have reasonable restrictions. I mean, putting aside the Claude Rain moment, it was a bit odd because many of us have been saying for over a year that New York was litigating a bad case and it will create bad law for their interests. But that has been the signature of the New York legislation for a very long time. Governor Hochul said, this is New York, we don't back down. Well, that may be welcome news for gun rights advocates, uh, given the record in cases like this one of reinforcing Second Amendment rights. New York has lost major cases in federal court that have actually worked against gun control. So part of this whole case was really a series of missteps by New York. And now New York has created one of the most significant losses for gun control in the history of the country. I'm from Los Angeles, California. We've known for years the only people who could get, you know, a special permit to carry concealed were like prosecutors who'd had their lives threatened after like a gang related case. You know, what does this ruling mean for average people now who ask for concealed carry permit in a state that previously denied them? Like are all restrictions off now or will cities still find ways to restrict or does this ruling make it pretty clear if you don't have a criminal record, you can have a concealed permit? Well, what it clearly says is that you cannot put the burden on the citizens to show that they have some special need or that they are personally and morally capable of having a permit. That is the presumption that is being shifted back to the state. So the states can still have a permitting system and they can still put some conditions with regard to former felons, people who are mentally ill. But those are going to be things that the state has information that causes them concern, right? Those are situations where the state has carried the burden. It says, look, we have a record here that says that there's a problem in your past and we want it addressed. That's different from telling everyone, if you want to carry that gun outside the house, you show us that you have proper cause and you're of good moral standing to do so. Professor, what might this ruling mean for gun-related sentencings? Does this change like how prosecutors charge in certain crimes, like gun enhancements? Well, it certainly will going forward because gun possession is going to be something that's easier to obtain for people who are otherwise law-abiding citizens. So it will change that. It was interesting that Governor Hochul said, well, we're immediately just going to start looking at what can be declared sensitive places because the court said that there can be restrictions in that area. Even if you're going to do that, you don't say it. You don't say, well, (laughs) we're going to try to create a loophole here. They said sensitive places. What if we call everything a sensitive place? It's like playing poker with the cards facing outward. And the question (laughs) is, 
Why do you want to do that, right, in terms of vocalizing it? And this has been the problem in New York time and time again, that is these laws are often produced for these political gotcha moments, but then they fall apart because these politicians don't create good laws or they create such a poisonous environment that it really undermines their laws. Finally, I want to ask why the court hadn't taken up a Second Amendment case in over a decade. There are some articles and publications out there that have said the justices were like waiting that a Second Amendment case wouldn't have succeeded. But now with more justices appointed by a conservative president, um, that now was the time. Is that a cynical attitude or was this case more deserving than other Second Amendment cases? Well, this court is incrementalist by tradition. You know, they tend to prefer to bring down major decisions and let them rest within the circuits to allow lower courts to work on the edges. So in some ways, it's consistent with the history of the court. But there were justices trying to accept cases, including that earlier New York case uh, that the state pulled right. right before they could rule. Um, But it certainly helps to have the added vote of Justice Barrett. And that's because you do need four justices to accept a case. And some conservatives might want to give this a little more time on the vine before they want to deal with it again. But I think the time was right with regard to this decision. The lower courts Um, had been flailing about on the way to approach Second Amendment challenges. And the Second Circuit particularly, which has always been a source of gun control rulings, um, really went out on this one uh, pretty far and said that this was uh, permissible. I think that was crossing the Rubicon for the court. And I think Mm -hmm. that also the conservatives saw this as an ideal case supplied again by New York to get this type of strong majority. Professor Jonathan Turley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Ben Domenech with your Fox News commentary coming up. It was on this day four months ago. Russia started invading Ukraine. The price of this battle for us is very high. President Volodymyr Zelensky says in addition to all the deaths, more than 12 million people have been displaced from their homes, and about half of them have fled the country. Amid all the destruction, 2,000 schools and educational institutions wiped out. He wants more international help. Only a sufficient number of modern artillery for Ukraine will ensure our advantage. Zelensky will make a direct plea, virtually, to President Biden and other world leaders at a G7 summit this weekend. Now, the U.S. will send an additional $450 million worth of military aid. Now, back in February, Fox News reporter Steve Harrigan had a front row seat when the war started. Whoa! Large explosion, two miles behind me. 
black smoke coming up. He was live on air from Kiev. Any idea what that was? Probably a missile. He has been there a lot over these last four months in different cities. Parts of Ukraine are completely destroyed. We caught up with Steve Harrigan in Odessa. This is a war that in some places, like in the east, it's just a war of attrition. It's artillery fire and buildings are being flattened completely. So it's a fight over what the Ukrainians are calling dead cities in the east, places that are just gone from the map. Gone from the map. So obviously Russia has taken over. They have rebels in that area, right, that even date back to Crimea eight years ago, right? There's been fighting for more than eight years ago in the east, but it certainly has intensified. The goal of Putin seems to be to try and get control over the eastern manufacturing region of Donbass and then maybe try and take control of the southern border. If he's able to do that, he'll really control Ukraine's economy. So there's a race on. Ukraine, on the other side, is trying to get Western weaponry, artillery and rocket launchers into position as quickly as possible to try and slow the Russian gains or even roll them back. You are in Odessa, which is right on the Black Sea. There hasn't been a lot of fighting there for the whole war, right? There has been sporadic shelling. Just this week, some food storage depots were hit by rockets. And it doesn't take a lot to shut things down. A large storage center, sort of a shopping mall area, was hit by some rockets. And all those stores in the surrounding area are shut down now. But people here are going about their business. You hear the air raid sirens. That either means the rockets are going to hit or they're going to fly overhead. And when you hear those sirens here, which you do almost on a daily basis, people seem to continue their business. They're walking on the streets. They're walking their dogs. Their mothers and children are out. They do not flee or hide in basements when those air raid sirens sound. Okay, so that's because they believe Vladimir Putin and Russia are focusing on areas in the east that we talked about. But Russia certainly has an eye on Odessa, right? It's a port city. It's a very important city economically for Ukraine and Russia also in this conflict, correct? You're right. One farmer here put it this way. He said the Russians are dreaming of Odessa day and night. They want to take it and they'll control our economy if they do. They'll control the whole coast. And that's where all the exports for Ukraine go out of. So there's a sense here that even though they're walking around when the air raid sirens wail, they, they know that if Russia can control the east, Odessa is the next target. Yeah, and you talk about farmers. I mean, grain is a huge export for Ukraine, important for a lot of other areas of the world. Can they get anything out? Is anything going out? We've heard of a Russian blockade. Is any export leaving? There is a Russian naval blockade along the coast, as well as Ukrainian mines in ports. So ordinarily, ships would be going out 5 million tons of grain exported a month. Right now, they have to do it by rail and by truck. So about 80% less is going out, just about 1 million tons of grain a month. And as you mentioned, this is going to have a ripple effect. Prices are already going up in North Africa. That's where much of this grain goes to. So because of this war between Russia and Ukraine, we could see famine in some countries in Africa, and we could see revolution in some countries over food prices or food shortages. What is being done to try to lift this blockade? Is there any negotiation possible with the Russians? Can anything be done? 
Negotiations are being led by Turkey, but they haven't had much success. And keep in mind, it could take some months to remove the mines if that is the decision. So we're not seeing a lot of progress. Russia wants all economic sanctions removed, and they want those mines removed. Ukraine doesn't want to take out the mines because they fear if they do, the Russians will invade the South by sea. And, and the West isn't going to lift sanctions on Russia while it's still invading, right? I mean, in the East, while it's still trying to take over part of Ukraine, that, that's a non-starter, I assume. It is a non-starter. So what we're looking at now is 25 million tons of grain stuck here along the coast. It could be feeding a lot of people in the world. A new harvest is now coming in, and they've got nowhere to store it. The Ukrainians say Russia is weaponizing food. They're calling this a war crime. When you talk about weapons and the plea for more help, what is it that the Ukrainians need the most from the West still? I think the goals have changed as the war has gone on. Initially, it was just helmets and rifles and then, you know, anti-tank missiles, shoulder mounted. And now this has become an artillery battle. So what they want is howitzers. They want heavy artillery and they also want advanced rocket launchers. These are mobile truck based rocket launchers that can fire six to 12 rockets at a time. They think that if they get these, they can begin to slow the Russian advance in the east and maybe even begin to retake territory. But you know, it takes weeks to train Ukrainian teams on how to use these weapons. And it's not easy to get these massive machines out into the field during wartime. So it's a much slower process than a lot of Ukrainian officials want. Some Americans have gone to Ukraine to join the fight against Russia. Two have been killed, two more have been captured. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says, We discourage Americans from going to Ukraine and, and fighting in Ukraine. It is a war zone. It is, it's, it's combat. A Russian spokesman said the other day, the death penalty is a possibility for those Americans. Three others who were previously captured from other countries were sentenced to die. The debate is whether they'll be treated as prisoners of war. The Russians at this point are calling them mercenaries, soldiers of fortune, criminals, terrorists. They say the death penalty is not off the table for at least two Americans, two of some of the thousands of people who've come here from around the world to fight for Ukraine. This is something the Ukrainian government has openly welcomed. They've asked people with military experience to come and fight. People are doing it, but you can imagine the complexity and the chaos of the battlefield you throw in. It's not your country, it's not your language. Just how more complicated that battle area can be for some of these foreign fighters. Is it possible that Russian leader Vladimir Putin would use these two for leverage in, and the possibility of, of, of a death sentence being carried out? Now, we've seen in the past a lot of deals. Sometimes we only know parts of the deals that go on between superpowers with exchanges of spies or people they want released. So certainly that would be a possibility. You know, if they put two Americans to death, I think the reaction in the U.S. could be strong. There's also talk, and this could take a long time, that Ukraine will be a candidate for membership into the European Union. And this is some th a very long process to happen. How important would that be for Ukraine? It's important symbolically for Ukraine to know that even as they're fighting a brutal war with Russia, 
that they are being seen by Europe as a part of Europe, certainly as a future member of the European Union. So I think it is definitely a morale boost for Ukraine at this time. It doesn't mean anything militarily, practically at the moment, but it is a morale booster and it is a sign that Europe considers Ukraine a part of Europe. And it is going to take perhaps a decade to actually become a member of the EU. Yeah, this is not NATO, so it's not a part of a military alliance. Is that an issue that's on hold, the idea of Ukraine joining NATO? You know, you don't hear that discussed as much. It's really a battle where each nation has the other by the throat. It's a bloody war of attrition right now. Uh, Topics like NATO membership have really receded into the background. And the battle now is for over key cities like Severodonetsk in the east, where it's just uh, crushing artillery and slaughter underway. Four months in, there can be some fatigue. People stop paying as much attention. It's a daily thing. We were all gripped by what happened. You were there when the war started. You were in Kiev when the, when the bombs were dropping and everyone was watching. That's not really the case anymore. You could watch an, uh, a news at night and not see a, a thing about Ukraine anymore. You're right. As a story four months ago, this was every 15 minutes, every half hour. Yeah. And now now some hours go by with no mention of Ukraine. So interest certainly has dropped. And I think there's fatigue on the battlefield as well. The losses have been so incredible on both sides. Ukraine losing up to 200 men a day. So there are real questions as to will each side have the manpower to continue this slaughter for the weeks ahead? The psyche of the Ukrainian people. We all saw in the very first few weeks, they were very angry and ready to fight for their homeland. Now that we're four months in and so much destruction has happened in the East and in Mariupol and some of these other places, has their will changed or is it the same in your view? You you go out, you see people. Uh, we've seen a lot of volunteers, even people who can't get to the front, either they're too old or they have young children. And they're doing things like building armored vests or they are sewing camouflage nets. I think there's a universal sense here, pretty much, where they've put their own lives and businesses on hold. And their chief priority now is the survival of their nation. I do not think the will has weakened. And I think despite the heavy losses, I think there's a real confidence among Ukrainians. Again, we're talking with farmers here along the coast. They say, you know, let them come to Odessa. We're waiting for them. So there's not a sense of fear. I think in the first few days there might have been some fear or some panic. But as they settle into this carnage, Ukrainians aren't going anywhere. Steve Harrigan, Fox News reporter who is now in Odessa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And now, some good news. Arkansas State Representative Dwight Tosh was just a normal 13-year-old kid in 1962 when something happened to him that would change the course of his life. I was a starter on my basketball team, uh, catcher on my baseball team. I had a great family life. I was healthy, and then 
I thought it was last forever. And then I became critically ill, and for weeks and weeks I was in a hospital here in my hometown, and they were unable to diagnose what was wrong with me. The doctors in his hometown of Jonesboro finally found the answer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. After unsuccessful treatment for the cancer, the medical team told his parents to prepare for the worst and said they may only have a couple of weeks left with their son. The day after that conversation, things started to turn around. Word came about a new research hospital, St. Jude, that had just opened its doors in Memphis, Tennessee. And so April the 23rd, 1962, I was transported by ambulance and I was uh, carried through the doors of St. Jude. At the time, the now legendary St. Jude Children's Research Hospital had only been open for a couple of months. His treatment was a success and Dwight went on to become an Arkansas state trooper, then a state lawmaker. But there's something else that keeps him grounded to his experience at St. Jude. They assign you a patient number in the order that you're admitted as a patient. And that number is yours uh, forever, regardless of the outcome. And just to give you an example, a child being admitted to St. Jude today, their patient number would be around 60,000. My patient number is 17. Today, he will be honored at St. Jude in Memphis as the hospital's first childhood cancer patient to ever reach the 60-year survivorship milestone just feet from where he fought for his life decades ago. 60 years ago today, I was laying in a hospital bed at St. Jude, you know, clinging to life. And and I thought, you know, if someone had walked in my room 60 years ago today and said, hey, Dwight Tosh, we're going to we're gonna tell you something that 60 years, June the 24th of 2022, you're going to return to St. Jude. And, you know, your story is going to be highlighted and you'll be living testament to that story. I don't, I'm not sure other than maybe my mom might believe that. Dwight told me that one of the things St. Jude survivors do when they meet each other is to ask, what's your patient number? A common bond they all have. It's just our way of acknowledging to one another, hey, we made it. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Ben Dominic. What's on your mind? Washington has mostly been focused on the gun issue this week, but there's uh, on the horizon a major decision uh, coming down from the court that everyone anticipates to come within the next few days uh, that will upend the course of conversation about abortion in America. It's going to be a critical moment for a lot of state level leaders who've never had to step forward on the abortion issue to make clear what their opinions are going to be in the instance of potentially this issue being sent back to the states where ultimately these decisions could lead to major differences across the country in all 50 states regarding when abortions are allowed, when they are funded and other major decisions that have to be made. This is an issue that raises a lot of hackles and is very uncomfortable for some people to deal with. It's also one that is deeply held in terms of their faith and their religious beliefs about the nature of human life. And it's one of the reasons why I'm very happy to bring to you a new documentary available on Fox Nation next week that will focus on the people who battled to overturn Roe versus Wade in the years since it was decided in 1973. 
no matter what the ultimate result, abortion is going to be an issue that really upends a lot of the different political assumptions that we've had uh, about the priorities of people on the state level, about who can get elected, uh, embracing these different culture war issues, and about the nature of the judiciary, which has been affected so much by this issue above all, and may end up being a very different creature after going through some years of nominations in which Roe versus Wade is not the number one issue on everyone's mind. I'm Ben Dominich. Listen and subscribe to the Ben Dominich podcast, which you can find at foxnewspodcasts.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.